when we made Saw, oh my God, like we defined naivety. <laughs> like <laughs> if, you should have seen us. Like first of all, we were 26 but we looked 12. We were just late bloomers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that pays off later in life. You know, when, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, right. You know, when you can wash your facial hair, hair off with a rag, you know, when you're 16 and you're worried, you're like, my friends have beards, why don't I? Kids, it pays off later. <laughs> Young men out there who are worried they're not going through puberty fast enough, guess what? All your friends are going to look 64 when they're 36 and you're still going to look good. Everyone and welcome to episode number 15 of The Fourth Wall. I'm your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals, ranging from directors, actors, you name it. This show is, of course, part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find the rest of our diverse film-centric show catalog. Whatever your fix is, we got you covered over there. And I guess, weirdly, this is the first episode of the new year, so first of all, happy Happy New Year to you all, I guess almost three months into 2020, but I'm very happy to be coming back with a brand new interview for you all because I got to be honest, this might just be my favorite conversation that I've ever had with someone on this show, and it just happened to be with the director of Blumhouse and Universal's latest monster movie, The Invisible Man. I'm, of course, talking about writer and director Lee Winnell. Many of you probably know Lee from his collaborations with friend James Wan and his creation of the Saw franchise. The two filmmakers are also the masterminds behind the Insidious series, with Insidious Chapter 3 marking the directorial debut of Winnell. In 2018, Winnell shocked audiences with his sci-fi action horror film, Upgrade, starring Logan Marshall Green, which has gone on to become somewhat of a cult classic. And now with his critically acclaimed reimagining of the classic universal monster, The Invisible Man, Winnell has proven himself to be a filmmaker with a distinct and captivating cinematic voice. Over the course of our conversation, we discussed his time as a journalist and movie reviewer for the Australian youth television program Recovery, his collaborations with Jason Blum and James Wan, taking an audience's cinematic knowledge and weaponizing it against them in The Invisible Man, the three essential films one should watch to better appreciate and understand The Invisible Man, and, most importantly, his favorite sushi restaurant in LA. This one was an absolute blast, guys. Lee was so much fun, and I honestly wanted the conversation to go on much longer than it did, and truthfully, it probably would have had he not uh, had to go to a Q&A afterwards. But seriously, thanks to Universal and Blumhouse for making this happen. It truly is one of my favorite uh, interviews we've done to date, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, let's get into this. Here is my conversation conversation with Lee Winnell. So tell me how this project came about. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Let me turn on my tape recorder. How many times have you heard that question? Many, many times. Yeah. Actually, Every I'm, now and again, uh, an interviewer knocks you out of your automated, like, by yeah. hitting you with unexpected, like, interesting questions, and you like, have to wake up and be yeah. like, wait, this person's... But the ones that are just reading from the press release, like one person, one chick didn't even try. She literally goes, so tell me about the invisible man. (laughs) And I was waiting for the end of the question and that was it. 
That was the question. Uh, that it would, would be like really? if you turned up to interview The Rock and were like, so you're, uh, tell me about Jumanji. Uh, it was crazy. That's, that, but that has to get to you too because like you, you used to be in the journalism space, right? Yes. And it, are we on right now or, or am are I just we, talking yeah, are to we, you? Are we recording? Oh, yeah, oh we're, we're good. Sorry. I, yeah. um, yes. It's made me retroactively worry that I, thinking that I was asking really original questions, was just asking the same old shit. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I, I did... Okay, I don't want to take up half of this interview talking about this, but this television show I used to be on in Australia, I was like the movie guy. Yeah. And recently uh, they made a documentary about this show. Yeah. um, Because it was like a cult series Uh um, until it was cancelled. And they made like a 20-year like anniversary documentary like Remember Recovery? And I had my little section of it. And as part of that documentary, they sent me the raw footage of me interviewing Wes Craven. Oh, Jesus. At a now closed cafe in Melbourne that is that was the greatest place on earth. I can't believe I didn't appreciate it more. It was a horror-themed cafe called uh-huh. Cafe Crypt and that's where I interviewed Wes Craven. And uh, for your listeners who uh, maybe haven't seen behind the Iron Curtain, the raw footage means <laughs> not that this was everything. This was me getting suited up with the mic. This was me and Wes Craven sitting there waiting. And um, I have to admit when I watched that footage, my questions were the same old boring shit. I was really? like, really? Yeah. This, it's the worst, I know. You, but I remember thinking at the yeah. time, I was 19 years old, I remember thinking, <laughs> he's never been hit with this one before. <laughs> But I'm watching the interview going, really? Uh, You know, what's so, what's attractive about the horror genre? You thought that was like, can't you go? But I was 19. I guess I got to give myself a pass for being a moron. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's part of the, uh, you know, you you live and you learn sort of thing. Yeah. But also, we're talking about a movie. So, how many options? Like, I would love it if you asked me about my favorite sushi restaurants in LA. Well, while we're at it, what are your favorite sushi restaurants in LA? Do you really want me to answer that? Because I'll take up a lot of time. Taking up as little time as possible. okay, Okay. So, if I had to pick one and I'm the annoying guy, that answers questions like that by saying, can I pick five depending on mood? <laughs> like I'll never – obviously the best interview subjects are the people who have that one answer. Yeah. Like what's your favourite place to go on a vacation? Yeah, for sure. They don't give you a list of five. They go, boom, Italy. And you're like, yes, succinct and great. Like I'm not that person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll break it down into categories and be like, <laughs> let me consult my notebook. Um, see, if it's <laughs> tropical, I like this place. And it's like, God, I wish I never asked. But – for the purposes of clarity and I've already gone over my allotted sushi time. (laughs) If I had to pick one and you're asking a lot, I'd go with Sushi Park. I think it's, it's on, it's in, it's in um, West Hollywood and it was, it's Elizabeth Moss's favorite restaurant in the world and she'll probably kill me for mentioning it here on this podcast because she wants it to stay. It's not a secret, but she, she doesn't you know, she wants it to be her thing. Of course, yeah. Right. She we we bonded over this restaurant. It is, mm-hmm. it is. I would describe the sushi there as life-changingly good. <laughs> that's a heavy description. That's of food. that's a, that's an endorsement of I've ever heard one. Um, sushi Park. Sushi it's on Park. Sunset Boulevard in a strip mall. Very unassuming. But yeah. all lots of good restaurants in LA are in strip malls. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You I, have to I, get used to the idea when you move here that lots of good stuff will have the shittiest exterior. I, this, I mean, that's sort of what I've found just living here in like the past three years. I've only been here for three years and that's that's pretty much in line with it's like that. A f- yeah. I, let me guess. You moved here three years ago and your friend was like, let me take you to this great place I love. Yeah. And he's driving and you pull over and you're like, Wait, where there's a Kinko's and a Jamba Juice. How where 
your mind can't compute that a good restaurant would be sandwiched between yeah like and then all of a sudden you go in and it's like you're in this other world and the yeah, food is great yeah, yeah, and you're like exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah they don't the 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 you know i feel like in other normal cities the good restaurants are where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. but in la there's no uh, recognizable order to things, mm-hmm. so the best restaurant in town can just be next door to a Kinko's, and yeah. and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. No, for sure. But what we want to hear about now is <laughs> listen. No, no, this is great. good. You've this is great. Me, oh, well, got I've got you going. going. I'm glad. I would. Yeah, you got me going. Uh, if you didn't have a Q and A, I'd I'd love to talk about sushi <laughs> all day. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I, I'm the thing that. I think always fascinates about fascinates me about you and your work is your ability to really stretch out a budget. Um, and I, I'm just like consistently blown away with it's like upgrade was like three million. This film was was seven million. How where does that sort of just like you know how, do, how where does that mentality come from from being able to do like so much with so little? Well, it's it's funny because I don't know anything about film financing. I'm not good with numbers. Like I'm really bad at guessing any numerical – like if I looked at a crowd of people and you said how many people in this crowd, I would be so – I'd be like a gajillion. Mm-hmm. You'd be like actually there's 27. Or I'd be way under. Uh, mm-hmm. There'd be 200 people and I'd say six. Like I'm so – my brain doesn't compute it. So when it comes to film financing, which is obviously its own beast, mm-hmm. I'm actually not good at, at looking at a figure and going, okay, here's what I can do with this. But I think what I do unconsciously when I write is kind of know when to hold them and fold them, meaning like here's where I'm going to do something expensive mm-hmm. and, and you know, um, showy and then, I'll, and then rhythmically you sort of learn this rhythm of like, okay, I'm only allowed to do this every seven scenes. Yeah. But it's sort of an unconscious thing of like, it's this inner metronome that goes tick, 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 showy expensive thing, tick, 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 showy expensive thing. And it's almost like somehow you work it out and um, it's, almost, it's, like a, it's like a trick. Like if you do it enough, you can almost you can convince people that the movie is more expensive than it is. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you go and see The Avengers, every scene is a showy expensive scene. Right. Even if two people are just talking, like if Captain America's hanging out talking to Thor, they're not just in a living room, you know, they're in front of Mount Vesuvius or something and right. it's blowing up. Yeah. And yeah. Like they, literally every scene is an expensive, whereas with, with my films it's more about deciding where that stuff will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, well, it's, it's interesting and I think it kind of goes back to um, the, the production design with your films because you, you literally, you, and especially in this film more than than others you literally use like every corner of the room and in this you're using it in a way to kind of like deter or or really get inside the audience's head and make them think Mm. oh is this where the invisible man is or is he not here it's like is there an important object here that maybe i should pay attention to for later um and so i i guess if you could talk about sort of like um creating like the houses and in like adrian's place especially and then also where um cecilia is well, yeah, I like environments to be characters in my films. Like they say a lot about the people. I mean, but that's how it is in real life. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, as you know, like when you go to someone's house, you immediately get a sense of who they are. From and and people are trying to do that. And and I find um, <laughs> going back to LA, like especially in LA, <laughs> people are very house proud, 
um, it's like, you know, in New York you live in a shoebox and the city is your house. Yeah. Whereas here it's like people decorate their houses as a display of who they are. Like, you know, I have these books on my bookshelf and those mm-hmm. books are supposed to communicate something about who this person is. Uh, if I go over to someone's house and they have toys and figurines and action figures, I know a lot about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think in movies it's just great when because in screenwriting, you know, you want to say as much as possible without saying anything. Like that's what every screenwriting book says is, you know, show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. And so I think in this movie you've got a character you never really see and so I wanted to learn as much about him. So one great way to learn about him is his house. Yeah, And so exactly. we spent a long time looking for, we, we, looking for a perfect place. I had a place in my mind that I could sort of see in my mind but it was really hard to find. First of all, in Australia it's not as filming location friendly. People aren't as willing to let a film crew stomp through their house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in LA I think people are very used to film crews. There's a real tradition here of like, um, can we use your house for a movie? Okay, pay me this much and we'll do it. In Australia it's like, Ugh. so you, that hurdle was like the biggest hurdle. Yeah, okay, interesting. It, it, yeah. It, the second biggest hurdle was finding the right place but the, actually the biggest hurdle was convincing people to even let us in and look and and actually to be honest, they're probably right in their fear of it because oh, film crews can be a <laughs> yeah. destructive force. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I would have a heart attack if I walked in and saw a film crew just tying things to my ceiling. I mean, they really just – so I hate to admit it but they're kind of right in their suspicion. But anyway, yeah. it took a long time to find the right place that the guy would actually let us shoot in. Yeah, well, I can't because it is so specific to him and his character and the, his occupation. And it was – a lot of this film reminded me of, of just like Hitchcock thrillers, which I know was an inspiration mm. for it. Yeah. Um, and like – the way you showcase the environment and the way everything was so purposeful reminded me of how Hitchcock would like stage his his sets. Like every object in the room had a purpose. So yeah, yeah. oh that's great. Thank you. That's a high compliment. I mean, yeah, Hitchcock he's a he's a genre unto himself, isn't he? Right. Like yeah, people yeah. use it's you know, it's a it's an adjective. It's like it's Hitch, it's it's Hitchcockian, you know, it's become that much <clears> of a <throat> thing. And um what yeah what he's amazing at is staging things in a way where he's toying with you so you know something's about to happen he and he he uses the frame and the set to you know you know more than the character does mm-hmm. a lot of the time and so you're you know he, his his whole theory of putting a bomb under the table the two people sitting at the table don't know it's there but you do mm-hmm. And as opposed to two people are having a conversation at a table and then a bomb goes off. Like yeah. that's a shock. But Hitchcock's thing is, no, I mean, who who cares about a shock? It's much better if you keep cutting back to the bomb mm-hmm. and then when you cut back to the two people at the table, the audience is like, ah, come on, yeah. get yeah. out of there. Well, like- it's, it's, it's interesting that you use that analogy because – the the big I will go into just brief spoilers mm. here, but the big scene where something like that happens, right, it's, right, yeah, you know, it's one of those things right, where it's like right, you, right. you never know where he's gonna when he's gonna show up, and then yeah. all of a sudden the bomb goes off. Yeah, the yeah. bomb goes off. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple where I did go, like if if you know if you know when to do the shocks, so it's like you're teasing, 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 walking people up to the edge of the line, and then finally you hit them with a guillotine. And, yeah, and that was one of those scenes where I was like, I just want to rip the audience heads off, head off here 
and um, they're fun. They're fun, those scenes to do. But mm-hmm. um, I actually find the more satisfying stuff to do is the stuff, the slower burn where you make the people squirm. Yeah. That's actually more satisfying ultimately than making people go, oh, shit. Well, and, and I think a film like this where, like, the character could, the Invisible Man, it could easily be done in a very cheesy way because right. you can't see him. Right. It really allowed you to play into those really long, slow burn takes and, and like, make you, like, think twice about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that. I mean, I, I think a lot of the way the Invisible Man has been exploited in the past is by... I think filmmakers have have sort of seen it as an opportunity to um, play these tricks with the body. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you know when you can't see somebody and you and water comes down, all of a sudden you see them. Or um, if they eat something or if they drink something, you know, um, isn't there's that scene in. Um, is it Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase where he's chewing gum? And, oh yeah, and yeah, you know it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's that sort of thing. It's like. Um, uh, look, he's eating something and it's visible. I thought this film would be better if all that stuff was stripped away mm-hmm. and it was more just about empty space. Yeah. You know, that's the way to make it scary. Like watching watching an orange juice bottle tip itself up in the air and orange juice pour down into an invisible stomach mm-hmm. might be a visual effects laugh, but it's like it's not going to make a film edge of your seat suspenseful. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're not going to be like, oh god, that orange juice! I'm so scared of it. <laughs> um, yeah. It's 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 more like what I felt was what would make people scared is if you just pointed the camera over there, because because audiences are so savvy, right? With mm-hmm. movies these days, they've watched so many movies that even the most passive, you know, viewer that's uneducated about cinema has an extraordinary knowledge of shots and how they work. Mm-hmm. I mean. The, it, your average person can decipher film language, you know, in a, in a microsecond. Yeah. That's how they can watch a movie and understand and catalogue information. So I knew that if I just pointed the camera here, the audience would be like, well, there must be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Like the camera doesn't go anywhere that it's not supposed to. So if we're looking at this empty room, what's in the frame that I'm supposed to be looking at? So I'm almost weaponizing an audience's knowledge of movies against them. Yeah. To, and when you when the movie's called The Invisible Man, you know, I mean, if the movie to, was yeah. called The Two Happy People and Their Trip to Italy <laughs> and we suddenly cut to a shot of an empty room, the audience might be like, what the fuck's going on? I thought we were in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> but with The Invisible Man, it, it come, that comes with suspicion. Like automatically you're like, what's going on here? Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it's a thing that like... I, I feel like there's almost like a shift going on in like studios with horror films where like they they almost have to go back and reinterpret right. what made those characters scary, which I know has been your big MO during the, the whole press tour has been saying, well, we had to strip the invisible man back to figure out what exactly made him scary. And then yeah. it was through the lens of the victim. Um, I, do, do you think that like more studios are willing to kind of adopt that mentality with things. Cause we we've seen it with, with David Gordon green and in, in the Halloween sort of, uh, I guess, continuation from right. the original film. They really just dialed it back to the core of it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, um, I never know where horror is going. That's what makes it interesting as a genre is like things last for a few years. And sometimes when you're in it, sometimes when you're in the middle of a horror trend, 
Like if you think back to like, remember that little micro trend that happened after Scream? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a glut of like slasher movies starring good-looking teenagers or mid-twenties people playing teenagers. Yeah. You know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Valentine, all this stuff. I remember when, 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 when I was in the middle of that, it felt like that was going to last forever because it feels like a long time. In, in hindsight, it was probably only a year where those films were trendy, yeah. maybe a couple of years at best. But it, it's easy to forget that it's going to come to an end. I, in the middle of this so-called torture porn thing. Yeah, I was just about to bring up the torture. After yeah, Saw, yeah. That, that felt like it was going to go on forever. Yeah. And it sort of exhausts itself. And now that that genre has really burned itself out as a – like there are still gory, intense horror movies being made but they're not – racing to the top of the box office charts like they were in that Saw era. Yeah. So each little moment that horror has, it feels like it's going to go on forever and then it ends and something new happens and I'm never sure what the new thing's going to be. Never. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe a horror journalist or someone like yourself who really might be better at unpacking this but I feel like we're in the middle of a like social horror trend maybe in the wake of Get Out. Yeah. No, would, not to yeah. say that's the only type of horror film being made but it is what the media seems to focus on right now. Mm-hmm. They've gravitated to this Get Out thing. And so um, that's not – I don't mind that at all. I think uh, the idea of horror films being wrapped around relevant issues is cool. But um, I just uh, – it's 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 fascinating to me as a view as a as a horror film fan to watch where the genre goes. Mm-hmm. I wonder where we'll be in ten years. I mean, do you have any guesses as to what's going to be the next popular horror thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, the big the big trend that I have noticed, aside from the social stuff, because you're right, we're seeing that with the hunt and like you know it was get that film was getting backlash before it even came out. Yes, exactly. By the media, and it's I mean it's ridiculous, but um. I, I feel like more like auteur driven, like smaller, like independent sort of horror films, like stuff like Robert Eggers is doing, yeah, uh, and uh, uh, Ari Aster. That that seems to be like kind of moving over into the into the mainstream in a way like that. It'd be a great thing you know, for the genre if it did. Yeah, right. Then all of a sudden, uh, you'd have a, a much bigger variety of horror than you've had in the past. You know, suddenly yeah. you'd have these filmmakers who've got one foot in Sundance. Instead of making, you know, an indie drama about a, a woman grieving the loss of her daughter, they make a horror film about a woman grieving the loss of her daughter. Yeah. Which is yeah. only great for the genre, you yeah. know? No, I, I completely agree. That, well, that's what I love what, like, that's why I love what, what studios like Blumhouse, what A24 are doing. They're kind of like bringing back the mid-budget movie that are just like where the artists are allowed to be creative and tell the stories that they want to tell. Um, is that sort of kind of what drew you to working with Jason originally? Yeah, I mean, yeah. J- uh, James Wan and I, we had done Saw and it, had, and it had been a big hit and then we did this little victory lap of, of town and um, it's very seductive. You know, you get invited into these offices and they tell you how great you are. And then we did Dead Silence, which was sort of a studio horror movie. Right. I, listen, I, there are parts of that movie that do still get me. Like I right. remember watching that when I was younger and having it go, whoa, okay, are yeah. creepy dolls here? Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah, exactly. I mean, um, look, there, yeah, there were some good ideas in there. I think uh, we weren't ready to do that film and there was many problems. It wasn't like I'm not going to pretend like the studio ruined our masterpiece. I think there were so many reasons that we could fill a whole other podcast. <laughs> For sure. But um, 
I think that, um, you know, I, I think after Dead Silence, we really felt shell shocked and kind of like, what are we doing? You know, what are we, what are we, we, we just were a bit lost in the woods, you mm -hmm. know? And then mm -hmm. we met Jason and he was like, you guys can just do whatever you want, you know? Yeah. But you won't have any money, but you can just make whatever movie you want. And that was attractive at that time. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would have to imagine so. Well, and I guess you know you brought up James Wan. I kind of want to touch on your working relationship with him. Obviously, yeah. it goes back to film school and whatnot. What what is that collaborative process like? And uh, just a little bit of a side, I've always been curious why you have not been involved in any of the Conjuring films because it always feels right. like you know like why would you? Yeah, a lot of people come up to me. Yeah. I still get credit for that. People will be like, ah, I love the Conjuring. Yeah, um, and uh, I do remember. Quentin Tarantino put Insidious on his worst movies of the year list. Oh, Jesus. You know, he comes out. <laughs> that was a weird thing as such a Tarantino fan. And yeah. then um, a, a couple of years later I was at a party and he was there mm. and uh, somehow we got introduced and he, he realised who I was and he was like, he said, uh, oh, you know, I, I put The Conjuring in my list of favourite movies of the year. Did you see that? <laughs> and I was like... Uh, I didn't have anything to do with that movie, but thanks. I'll uh, pass it on to James. Uh, yeah. um, but uh, a lot of people do think I, I wrote it, I guess, because we were such a team. But no, that yeah. was something that was a script that had already been written. James had just done Insidious and he he wanted to do this movie. And I remember thinking he was... I, I remember thinking it was not a good move because I was like, you just made this movie. Yeah, right. Like why do you... Um, and he said, you know... I want to – his goal always since the first day I met him was to make big studio tentpole movies. He wanted to be James Cameron. Mm. He wanted to be Steven Spielberg making these big movies. And so, you know, Insidious did really well and, but it was an independent film. He wanted to do a hit movie for a studio. Mm. And in hindsight it was a brilliant move. Like he, you know, he totally believed in The Conjuring. He put everything he had into it but part of it was strategic too. He was like I want to make – a studio hit because that's what gets you if you want to be James Cameron or yeah. if you want to be Chris Nolan, you have to make someone a lot of money. You know, Chris Nolan now, everybody's like, I love him. He's such an auteur. He does what he wants and it's that's true. But the only reason he does what he wants with all this money is because he did those Batman movies. Yep, yep. He made like those Batman he, – he could not have gone from Memento to Inception and Interstellar and Tenet like – the Batman movies are what got him this lifetime membership <laughs> to the VIP yeah. room. Um, Spielberg, you know, he had to make Jaws. He had to – I mean he did it ten times in a row. But you don't get the VIP card for nothing. And so James was smart. He made The Conjuring and he made this brilliant movie. I love The Conjuring. It's one of my favourite horror movies. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's – Absolutely, just like a, a classic in terms of the genre. It, it, it's a, it's a classic. Yeah, it it's it's yeah. like the haunted house movie yeah. of our generation. Absolutely, and and, uh, and masterfully made. I feel like I feel like Insidious was the dress rehearsal. The Conjuring was the main event. Yeah, and, right. For sure. Well, and, I, I love the Insidious movies on their on their own and and what they do, and it kind of like dealt with more like the. I guess like the metaphysical or, or whatever. Yeah, more it was so. a little bit. Yeah, I mean it was scrappy, you know. Yeah. Insidious was like us going back and doing Saw all over again because mm. we did Saw, we had 18 days to shoot it. It was very run and gun. It felt like a student film. Mm -hmm. And then it was a hit. So you think you would go on and suddenly be like, oh, now I'm in the club. But after Dead Silence didn't work, 
you're kicked back down to the minor leagues. Right. You know, you get this one at bat, right? And you're like, yeah, man, I'm playing Major League Baseball, man. I'm here forever. <laughs> and then you have a terrible season and you're back in the triple A's and you're like, it's hard to go back. It's hard to go back to the minors when you've been in the stadium playing Major League Baseball. I love this baseball analogy. It's very pertinent for Americans. And as an Australian, I think I need extra credit for this. But, like, it is hard to go back to the shitty tour bus and the th- of, the, of the minor leagues when, you've, when you have... And so we were like, we're going to have to go back and do Saw all over again. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much exactly Saw. It was almost exactly the same budget. It's about a million dollars. It was almost exactly the same schedule. It was 22 days as opposed to 18 days for Saw. Um, It was so similar except for one thing. We, James and I, were wiser and and a little bit more learned about the pitfall. Like I just – when we made Saw, oh, my God, like we defined naivety. (laughs) Like (laughs) – if, you should have seen us. Like, first of all, we were 26 but we looked 12. We were just late bloomers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that pays off later in life, you know. When, <laughs> there you go, yeah, right. You know, when you can wash your facial hair, hair off with a rag, you know, when you're 16 and you're worried, you're like, my friends have beards, why don't I? Kids, it pays off later. <laughs> Young men out there who are worried they're not going through puberty fast enough, guess what? All your friends are going to look 64 when they're 36 and you're still going to look young. Um, <laughs> but we just didn't, we didn't know anything. It was like... We just, yeah, we just didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. We, but, mm-hmm. we made, but somehow this movie we made was a hit and, you know, and, and, and when I look back at it now I have a lot of affection and then there are some parts that make me cringe because I wrote it when I was 23. Mm-hmm. So, that you know, I, but, I, but I view it with affection. Yeah, no. For, well, and I'm curious, when you were tackling the Insidious films, were you ever concerned that that franchise was ga- kind of going to go the same way that the Saw films did, where it was like it started to become the law of diminishing returns as they sort of went yeah. on? I mean, it's hard not to do that with sequels. Like, um, you know, I've written all of the Insidious movies thus far, right. four of them, and um, the third one I directed, so I treated that like it was Long Day's Journey into Night. Yeah, I, I, it, truthfully, aside from the first one, that is my 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 second favorite out of the. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it was like a great first movie. It wasn't, it wasn't too big in scale. It was, it was, it was, it was something I could handle. I knew the characters really well, so it was sort of a soft landing. It wasn't exactly the ambitious. Some people they come out of the gates with like, you know, a, a masterpiece that you're like. You know, but I, I definitely didn't do that. I did the yeah. safe first movie. Yeah. Just getting my feet wet, which is sort of who I am as a human being. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I wanted to get my feet wet, but then I was addicted. Yeah. So Upgrade was really me. That was more my coming out party in terms of like, here's who I am as a filmmaker. With, with Insidious, I had to stick to a template. I couldn't be like, hey, Jason, this one's going to be black and white. Mm-hmm. And set in Poland in the 40s. You know, he would have been like, no. <laughs> so I felt like with Insidious 3, just to a certain degree, I was doing my best impersonation of James Wan. Mm. Like I had to carry the torch of this franchise, whereas with Upgrade, all bets were off and I just could do me. You yeah. do you. And so that was more me. And, the, and Invisible Man is the same. You know? Yeah, I, did, like, I definitely saw some some similarities just in more of your like signature like uh, yeah. things that you would put on stuff. But I know we got to start wrapping it up here, um, but I do want to do a quick segment that yes. I like to call Film Essentials. And actually you're the yes. first guest 
for this. So uh, yes, it's, it's going to be awesome. Uh, basically, the gist of it is uh, I want you to give us a list of the films that one should watch if they want to better appreciate or understand The Invisible Man. Okay. Um, and then give like brief explanations as to why you chose them. The list can be as long or as short as you'd like. Okay. Um, in no particular order. Um, well, there's... There's Cat People, the Jacques Tournier film from a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is actually, you know, a lot of the older horror films, they're, they're very atmospheric and they're great, but they don't necessarily hold up in terms of sheer terror in the way that something um, closer to our generation might it might hold. Like The Exorcist, I mean, that was the 70s, but it still has power and The Shining has power and... and um, Cat People is one of those movies that still has real atmosphere and it's all about what you don't see. Mm-hmm. It was one of the, I, I went back and watched that while I was writing this movie and just getting an idea that there's a lot of sequences in the movie where you're hearing things and the character's turning around and it's an empty shot, it's an empty frame. There's one sequence where the sort of heroine of the movie, she goes down to this like pool area this, and there's someone walking and... It's all really cool and beautifully staged, especially for its time. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So that's one. Um, what else? Um, Misery is one film that I just loved. Um, there, there's a certain brand of like adult thriller that I feel like Hollywood used to make on a big scale. Right before the advent of CG, you know, when anything was possible, mm-hmm. there was this period like late 80s, early 90s where Hollywood would make these adult thrillers starring big names. You know, movie stars would head up the... And they were great actors. You know, Fatal Attraction, Misery, um, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. You know, there was this whole genre. Post-Fatal Attraction, there was this whole mini genre of like um, psycho stalkers, you know, Pacific Heights. Um, Single White Female was another one that I actually saw in theatres. And I miss that. I, I, I used to love. I, I used to love those movies. I think partly because I, that was my era. Yeah. You know the VHS era, and so I have a lot of nostalgic affection for them. But I also miss like character-driven thrillers that you can hold in your hand. Seriously. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, I, yeah. it's not that I don't love big spectacle-driven movies. Like, I will go and see, you know, like Chris Nolan's new film, yeah. Tenet. Right. Yeah. I'm the first in line. Yeah, absolutely. And like <laughs> yeah. and, and you know with him, you know it's not going to be mindless. You know it's gonna like be it's gonna be um challenging and, and it'll probably play with time in some way and mm-hmm. it'll it's great. So it it's I, I don't have anything against big spectacle superhero movies, but I do miss those those kind of character-driven chamber pieces. Mm-hmm. So in the way Invisible Man was a, a reflection of that. Yeah. So what else? Uh, another film that I really uh, watched. Well, recently, I mean, I love David Fincher. I think mm-hmm. he has a real signature, which as a filmmaker it's hard to have a signature. It's hard enough to just make a movie, let alone make a good movie, let alone make a good movie that is recognisably yours. Yeah. How many filmmakers can you count on your hands where you could know who it was within a few minutes of watching? Like Tim Burton is one. I feel like I see a Tim Burton movie you, you a know lot exactly of the time. Who that I know yeah. who it is. Yeah. Scorsese, you know. You, right. Um, and Finch is one of those people. He is, yeah. He has yeah. a style. 
And I, I really admire that. That's what I aspire to. Like I'm pretty superstitious so I shouldn't say this out loud. But you know what? I love your podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. My big, my big goal in life in however many years it takes, if I can manage it, would for people to be like would, – would be for people to say, oh, this is such a Lee Whannell movie. Mm. Like to have a stamp um, – and, you know, it doesn't take much but it's just something that's recognisably yours and um, Fincher, I love, I love his style. I love, um, um, I love the fact that he just doesn't care. He's doing his own thing and, and Gone Girl is um, obviously it's based on this very famous book that's a great book but it's so Fincher and it has that feeling of those 90s thrillers we were talking about. Yeah. It has that feeling of like... It's complex psychologically and it's it's brutal, you know. There's blood oh my God, and there's yeah, scenes yeah. of so yeah, I'd say those movies would that, be ones to go to. Those are three excellent movies. I Yeah, I a little film festival there for you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you guys. There's there's the uh the Invisible Man Film Festival. Thank you, Lee, so much for coming on. Thank I really you. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. Cool. This was one of the good interviews. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there you go. You got the seal of approval. You got the seal of approval. Well, there you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Lee Winnell. Seriously, that one was an absolute blast. From the second he entered the room, I knew this was going to be one that was uh, going to be special. It's very rare you get to talk to a filmmaker who appreciates and loves cinema as much as us fans, us journalists, us commentators. And so being able to have that rapport and just go off and talk about Hitchcock and go off and talk about, uh, you know, the the state of horror, that's, that's very rare. And I'm thankful and happy that I was able to have that conversation with Lee. The Invisible Man is now in theaters. And seriously, guys, it is by far my favorite film of the year. And it's bound to become a horror classic. For sure, don't miss out on what is one edge of your seat, insane psychological thrill ride with a killer performance from Elizabeth Moss and some incredible direction from Lee Whannell. But the most important thing is I want to hear from you all and I want to know what your favorite Lee Whannell film is. Now we're going to bend the rules here, not necessarily your favorite film directed by him, but we can include writing in there as well. So you can go with Saw, you can go with The First Insidious, the Invisible Man, you name it. I want to hear about it down in the comments section below of wherever you're listening to this episode. Be sure, as always, to subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network for more episodes of The Fourth Wall, along with the rest of our diverse film-centric catalog. And if you want to go that extra mile and you really want to make my day and you feel so inclined, it would be amazing if you left us a rating and a review as it greatly helps the show out, helps us get noticed, and it allows me to know what you're all loving and what you want to see more of. I don't have a next guest quite yet to tease, but I am working on getting some very exciting people on this show. Hopefully we'll get some coverage at South by Southwest. But until then, guys, if you like me specifically and you like what I have to say, you can give me a follow on Twitter at Griff Schiller. All right, that's going to do it for this episode and I'll catch you next time. Take care.